Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome everybody to citybeautiful.ch. Uh, I'm Pastor Ryan. We've said it enough today. It's like we'll get it. There was one time, I don't remember who it was. It was maybe one of you was doing the announcement. said citybeautiful.ch.com. And I'm like, I don't know if that works. Don't go there. It might be something strange. Um, so we're currently in a series called Original Jesus. Our, uh, our big vision that the Lord gave us for 2020 is maturing in Christ for the sake of the world. And we wanted to begin the year um, with the all-important question, what does maturity look like? And can we look at Jesus not just as a template um, or good advice on how to become a mature person, although you can do that with Jesus, but on a deeper level to engage with the person of Jesus in such a way that we're transformed from the inside out. That the Christian journey, what happens between your baptism and your funeral, is called sanctification. It's about being changed. It's about being transformed and becoming more like Jesus in your character. That our faith is not about behavior modification, but it's about becoming someone. And so we look to Jesus not only as the trajectory for who we will become, that Jesus is the truly human one, but we also engage with Jesus in that process, and he transforms us to look more like him. And so today, we're going to be in a story in Luke chapter 10, um, the story of Mary and Martha. I'm going to pray, and we'll just jump into this. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your presence here today. Um, Lord, we're coming in, uh, you know, with uh, so much on our hearts and our minds. Um, so many victories and defeats, so many successes and failures, uh, so much hope, so much fear, guilt, regret, anxiety, excitement. Lord, in this room, the whole panoply of, of human emotion is present. Um, but you invite us to come all the same and to bring every part of who we are and to lay it at your feet. So Lord, I pray that in this moment, whatever we're carrying somehow through the Spirit, we're able to lay it down. That it wouldn't prevent us uh, from meeting you, whether we feel like we're not worthy of it, or we're just too distracted, or there's just too much going on. Um, Lord, this is the moment that matters. Because it's the moment that we're able to encounter, encounter you. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today we're going to be doing the story of Mary and Martha. Many of you are probably familiar with this. And there's one thing that I often find when we're, when we're doing Bible is we read it and we go, you know who needs to read this? And then it's like, insert other person, you know, we're like, man, that is, that is totally my mom. That is definitely my teacher. That is so much, you know, Kevin or whatever. Sorry, Kevin. I didn't mean you, I, I picked the name, but I didn't mean that, Kevin, obviously. Um, and the Mary Martha story is very much one of these kinds of stories where we go, I really need to send this along to somebody. I, just out of the kindness of my heart during the sermon, I'm just going to go ahead, I'm going to text my brother just to inspire him a little bit more to be a different person because he's annoying. Uh, I want everybody to stand up, put your hand over your heart, and repeat after me. I am Martha. I am Martha. Okay, sit down. Now we're going to read this story. It's just, it's only four verses. It's very brief. We're going to read this and do not turn this around on other people. This is about you. I'm talking to you about you. 
Because it's about you. It's not about the person next to you. It's about you, okay? Here we go. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So there's a little bit that we know about this family, Mary and Martha. And if you know, uh, in the Gospel of John, there's another story about their brother Lazarus, um, who dies, who's put into a tomb. Jesus shows up a little too late to have supposedly done anything about it. He has this engagement with Martha. She's like, well, I know he's going to be resurrected at the end of times. And, and he encourages her to have faith, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. So this is the same family. Um, so we, can, we kind of can assume this, uh, they are uh, like longtime friends of Jesus, um, that they're in a village that's just outside of Jerusalem, so they possibly, he's visiting them several times, and he stays with them and fellowships with them um, while he's going about his earthly ministry. Um, and one of the, t- the oftentimes people look at this and there's a, kind of an oversimplification of the posture of Mary that oftentimes it's Mary is doting on Jesus. She's sitting on his feet, just adoring him. And that's what we, we've got to do. But there's actually kind of a more insidious subcontext to what's going on here. Um, so a little bit of first century Judean uh, cultural reference points. Um, they were a society that was, that was pretty differentiated between men and women. And there, the way houses were built, there were spaces for women and there were spaces for men and there were spaces for overlap. And you can probably fill in which ones are which, you know. Um, and you can even derive some context from this. But there would have been this, this kind of larger room that was just for the men while the women are in the kitchen taking care of the kids and all of that kind of thing. And so they're mostly divided except for a few moments during the day when they're engaging over a meal or whatever uh, might be going on. And so it's, it's actually really scandalous that here's this moment where Jesus, this kind of somewhat famous traveling rabbi, is sitting in the main room of the house and one of the women, Mary, is sitting at his feet. Because to sit at the feet of a rabbi means something. It doesn't mean you just like them or you adore them or you want to get to know them better. It means you've got an agenda. So the first thing is that Mary is in a space that she's not supposed to be in according to this culture. She shouldn't be in there. She should be out helping Martha. So that's why Martha is so incest at what her sister is doing. The second thing is that you sit at the feet of a rabbi in order to become a rabbi. So there is an agenda. It's not just about like adoring somebody and just listening to them. It's like, no, I'm going to take in what you have to say because I'm making myself your student with the intention that someday I too am going to become a teacher, that I too am going to preach, which again would be tremendously scandalous in first century Palestine for someone to do that, especially for a woman, because that's not her place at all. And so there's, there's something going on here more than just Mary's very bothered, Mar- you know, Martha's very bothered, Mary's doing the right thing. It's Mary is actually sitting there with this intention of this good news is good news for everybody. And that means that we no longer divide ourselves according to gender or what we find out later in the writings of Paul. We don't divide according to race or gender or socioeconomic status. Now what qualifies us is whether or not we are sitting at the feet of Jesus. 
And it's hard for us, even in our modern era, even with all the misogyny that we deal with in our modern culture, to really grasp how revolutionary this was in the time. That for Mary to sit here was a dramatic shift of the way that culture is organized. And indeed, and, and how we measure who is, who is in and who is out. I think this is another great example of something that I've been really thinking about a lot the past year uh, when we talk about inclusivity and exclusivity. Um, that I, I believe more than ever now that the kingdom of heaven is radically inclusive in the sense that the ways that you and I as human beings normally divide ourselves up, race, gender, uh, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, whatever it might be, the ways that we normally do that, those things no longer apply within the kingdom of heaven. But it is radically exclusive in the sense that now the new marking of those who are in the kingdom of heaven are those who are sitting at the feet of Jesus, who recognize Jesus for who he is and are responding to his call. And I get just as worried as I get with many churches that are so exclusive, they make all these, these uh, lists of caveats, and you've got to do this, and they make it impossible for anybody to enter into the kingdom of heaven because there's so much legalism. I'm also worried at the other side that sometimes we make it so radically inclusive that we're not asking anything of anyone when Jesus is standing and saying, come in to me, sit at my feet, learn from me, let me teach you, let me put my spirit into you so that you're formed. And so when we think of exclusive and inclusive, we have to kind of transcend to this far deeper thing of it's about obedience to Jesus, it's about faithfulness to him, and that is what marks people that are in the kingdom of heaven. And this is what we see all through the gospel of Jesus. We see him engaging with people from all of these different categories and shaking them up, but it's people who respond to him, rich or poor, Judean or Samarian or Greek or Roman. It's the people that respond that are found to be receiving the kingdom of heaven. And what this really says to us then is the paramount importance of um, intimacy. You know, our three theological values in this church that we believe it's intimacy with Father God, that it teaches us how to inhabit our identity in Christ, which gives rise to our spirit-led purpose as God's church. I was even thinking, you know, last week we did this experience in here with the Lord's Prayer, and we're actually going to leave the prayer um, on the floor kind of as a symbolic, like, immersement. Like, we're, we're in the Lord's Prayer. And thinking about that, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how often when we come to Jesus, we're already coming with our agenda and our expectations and our needs, and we're not allowing our desire and will to be formed by heaven to know what it is that we are to ask for. And to have the boldness to lay down all of the things that we think that we want and we need and and how we want to define ourselves and what we want out of life and to say, first and foremost, your kingdom come, your will be done, not my own, on earth as it is in heaven. You see, we don't cast earth back up into heaven and hope something sticks. We allow heaven to come to earth and to transform us here. So this is kind of my main premise For today, when we forget to sit at the feet of Jesus, we confuse productivity with faithfulness. When we miss that call to intimacy, the call to respond to the God revealed in Jesus, we begin making assumptions about how the world works and we start to label that productivity. I think now more than ever, we live in a cult of busyness. I think it's almost redundant how many times I think... uh, Curtis and I were on the phone earlier this week. And he's like, how are you doing? I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm really busy. And I, it's just like, that's like a standard thing. How many of you are busy? Yeah? 
Okay. I, I'm, I have the sneaking suspicion that busyness is not as real as we think it is. Um, that it's something, it's a line that we've bought, usually because to be busy means that you have value because you're doing something, and if you're doing nothing, you don't have any value. Um, and so we give over, we sacrifice our calendars at the altar of busyness uh, in order to continue to find value in who we are and what we do. Um, and before long, we're, we're always finding exceptions to the rules, even when we try to establish healthy rhythms in our lives. Um, when we, again, present ourselves with a false option, well, I could do these things that I know are probably good for me, but I've really got to get stuff done. Almost, almost said it. Um, but when we... I, I'm trying to get better, I swear. And we have so many presumptions in our modern society about busyness and productivity. And it's so very tied into what we think it means to be a human being. But when you and I, when we, when we give ourselves over to that, when we allow ourselves to be sacrificed on the altar of busyness, we can't hear Jesus challenging us about the kind of work that we're putting our hands to. There's this another amazing little story in Matthew 26 that I think shows this, even with Jesus' disciples, that they confused productivity with faithfulness. I'm going to read this quite quickly in Matthew 26. While Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This woman had taken um, this, this jar of oil uh, and perfume probably a year's salary. This is very, very expensive stuff. And she broke it over Jesus in this symbol of preparing him for his burial. So, I mean, take whatever your year's salary is and then go to the mall and then get some perfume and then walk over to some dude and just smash it over his head. You know, the feeling, you're like, oh, what did I just do? And I think many of us, probably, if we're honest, we would be in that place. Remember, I am Martha. So it's like we would put ourselves in this place of disciple and be like, no, 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 no. We could feed the poor. We could do all these amazing things. We could start new programs. We could, we're thinking productivity. Then you see, it's even good things. I'm, when I'm talking productivity, I'm not talking about wasting your time. I'm talking about you making good use of your time. You see, they had these assumptions about this is how the world works. And Jesus says, slow down. What she's doing is beautiful because it's an act of intimacy with me. And a lot of scholars think that this was actually the moment of breaking for Judas Iscariot. You know, he was the treasurer for the disciples. He kind of helped. He handled the money. He had his Dave Ramsey envelopes with it all allocated <laughs> out there, you know. And you can imagine, like, if that's your role and you're the responsible one, because responsibility and productivity are, are very intimately connected, you're looking at this and going, what is this guy doing? This isn't how we're going to fix the world. We need programs. We need to get out there. We need to do more. We need to be more active. We need to be more resilient. We need to do the research. And he misses the point. And I think this is where his heart starts to close off 
to the intimacy with Jesus that he was beckoned to in the ministry. And are we not the same? That sometimes we look at the way that Jesus does things and we go, he just didn't know any better. He didn't take the right courses at college to know how to really be more productive or to how to have a really great ministry. And we kind of close our hearts off to what matters above all else. And when we shut our hearts off to intimacy with Jesus, we start to make a lot of presumptions about what it is that we're supposed to do with our time, our resources, what kind of work we're supposed to do. I came across this uh, really beautiful quote from Henry Now, and it's in this journal uh, of his travels through South America as he's trying to discern his own vocation. He had been teaching at Yale, but he really wanted to go and work among the poor in South America. And actually, the spoiler alert, at the end of it, he ends up uh, moving up to Canada and working uh, with profoundly disabled people. But this is a, a quote as he's trying to figure out his own vocation. He says, the Christian is called to live in the world without being of it. But how do we know whether we're just in it or also of it? My feeling is that every Christian who is serious about his or her vocation has to face this question at some point. Think about like your literal job right now, just as an example. Is it, and it doesn't have to be, we don't, I'm not saying we all need to be in ministry, but are you actively working to create a world that you don't want to live in? Are you putting your time, your resources, your energies to doing something that makes the world a worse place or a better place? And are you able to do that with the kind of kingdom perspective that's welcoming people into new revelation of what God looks like in Jesus? We're afraid to ask those questions a lot of times because we're very pragmatic. We're practical. We've got to pay the bills. We've got to, you know, we just, we just Jesus, Jesus will understand. He just, I've, I've got things that I've, I've got to do. Um, another favorite quote of mine recently from old Stanley Hauerwas, he says, efficiency is not a theological category. As Christians, we don't do what we do because it makes sense. We do it because we're faithful. And a lot of times the lives that we're called to live are actually very impractical and inefficient ways of using our time and our resources, at least by the standards of the world. You see, without Jesus, we end up propping up these false kingdoms of the world instead of manifesting a dramatically new one in its midst. When we confuse productivity for faithfulness, we, can, we just continue to play out these narratives that are holding people back from knowing God, from having inherent value of making the world more and more like the kingdom. We don't want to ask Jesus' opinion on the things. We actually relegate, well, Jesus just, he cares about my spiritual life and the physical bit of the life. Well, we'll hand that over to whomever. The economic experts, the political experts, the societal experts, whatever. They get to have a say on how we do all of these things. Jesus just wants my heart. We don't want Jesus' opinion on politics. We don't want Jesus' opinion on economic uh, ideas. We don't want Jesus' opinion on how we value people. We don't want Jesus' uh, opinion on a sexual ethic. We don't want Jesus' opinion on how we're supposed to treat other people. We don't want those things because we want to be productive. We want to be responsible. But we still want to maintain control that we get to decide what we do with our time and our resources, what we do for work. And it leaves us in this very pro- pro- uh, problematic place when we forget to sit at the feet of Jesus, we become prescriptive busybodies or apathetic lazybones. 
instead of attentive disciples. I almost took it out. You can ask Dan. I was like, this is the worst. I'm, I'm awful. This is what happens when you don't go to seminary. You write little sentences like this. But we forget to sit at the, seat, the feet of Jesus. We end up in one of these two categories when we're divorced from intimacy with God. And this is a very, very, should make us sit up in our seats. And there's another little passage uh, from the end of the Sermon of the, on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Um, Jesus is speaking about true and false teachers and true and false disciples. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And what is the will of our Father in heaven? To know him, to be known by him. Many will say to me on on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Do you realize that you can live a good life? You could live a supernatural life to use the parlance of the times and yet completely miss the point. Because the the reasons that these people are giving for why they should be able to enter the kingdom of heaven are good things. How many of you would like to see more demons cast out? Right? How many of you would like to see more miracles? Like, these are good things. But they're no substitute for the, the actual point, which is being in relationship with Jesus. Now, there's been a recently uncovered manuscript of this story um, that really contains some powerful uh, dynamics, and it's probably not in your Bible yet because they're kind of still running it through the circuit, but there is is dramatic and powerful evidence that Mary and Martha actually had a third sister, and her name was Mindy. They came from one of those families, you know where they all marry Martha, Mindy, it's like anybody else here like that, your siblings all the same letter? And so what, they have, what scholars have discovered in this, in this new manuscript is that Mindy, the third sister, the whole time all this is going on, she's wandering around in the backyard while Jesus is inside teaching in the name of being spontaneous. She's, she's already got it. Mindy, Mindy knows that she's already got it. She's already in the kingdom and she already has the Holy Spirit. And so her life is really just about going where the Spirit leads, quote unquote, of being spontaneous. <laughs> And it's a really beautiful day in Palestine. The sun is shining and the birds are singing and she's, just, she's out there and she said, oh, well, I know Jesus is in there, but I'll, I'll catch up with him later. It's going to be fine. You see, some of us can end up being these prescriptive busybodies where when we make it less about intimacy with Jesus, we start walking around and wagging our fingers at other people for not being more productive or not being you know, on the right side of history or not doing things a certain way because we've bought into a system instead of a person. While others of us get so caught up in this idea of freedom and spontaneity and like being open and available with life that we actually miss the call to find ourselves at the feet of Jesus. Because we're content. We figured out that we've, we've already got it. We already know who he is. We already know what he's going to say. And we're just going to kind of live life our own way. We need to elevate the conversation of who we're called to be and what we're called to do from either being about productivity or complacency. These are not categories in the kingdom. There's one category. It's called faithfulness. And in order to be truly faithful, we need to talk less, do less, and listen more to Jesus. 
And again, some of you, your hearts are jumping at that because you don't like that idea of doing less. Because who are you if you were to do less? But unless we learn how to waste time with Jesus, we're going to miss it. I love that in that Luke chapter 10, when it's talking about Martha, it says Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And it's somewhat ironic. There's all these things that have to be done. I've got to do all this and I've got to figure these things out and then maybe eventually I'll be able to go and listen to Jesus. We've got to do less. We've got to talk a lot less. And that's coming from someone who talks for a living. We need to talk a lot less. We need to stop speaking on behalf of Jesus. Okay? We need to stop speaking on behalf of Jesus, much less the church. And we need to put listening to him at the forefront of everything that we do. We need to give him the first fruits. He gets the first and the best bit. Because only then, only when we put aside all of our productivity and our complacency, can we be formed to become the body of Jesus that we're meant to be. To make what's true on the inside of us true on the outside. And it's a lot simpler than you think. We've, we've made this idea of being with Jesus so complicated. And we'll point to all the things that it's not. But why can't being with Jesus be reading your Bible? Just meditating on a verse. Spending time in worship. Being quiet. The simple things of our faith with the right attitude can be blessed to be the very place where we cultivate intimacy with Jesus. At the beginning of the year, we all asked the Lord for a word individually that would guide our shaping for the year and had a couple ideas of what it would become. And, and later on, it, the Lord actually changed it dramatically from what I thought it was going to be. My word is apocalypse, which is real fun to hammer out on a, on a washer. It's like, can it be joy again? Like, it's easy. The word apocalypse is a scary word. We think of the end of times, we think about fire and brimstone and, and demons with women's faces and locust wings and all that great Revelation stuff. I really want to teach Revelation sometime because it's really an excellent book. It has a negative, apocalypse has a negative connotation uh, in our society, but that's more because of Hollywood than it is of actual scripture. The word apocalypse just simply means an unveiling or a revealing that things are being shown for what they really are. And the, the book of Revelation or the apocalypse is kind of a uh, psychedelic play that's showing what the really real thing is that's going on beneath the surface of what we can see. And I'm, at, at 36, I'm, I'm at this point where I, gosh darn it, I really want to see the kingdom of God. Like, I, I just, as the older I get, and then maybe I'm getting more cynical, I get so disillusioned by all these things going on in, in our culture right now, and all these conversations, and all this left-right nonsense, and I'm looking at all of it, and I'm going, it's all tricksy, and it's all false, and none of it really sounds very kingdom when you get down to the core of it, and I kind of want that. I kind of, I, I don't want to fight the culture wars anymore. I want to pursue the kingdom of heaven because culture is ransacking the field of engagement and they're determining the language that we're supposed to use and the assumptions that we make about how the world is supposed to work. 
And we buy into it because they've got better branding than Jesus does. Because you can look at it and you can see it and they've got nice colors and they've got these cool phrases and nobody can talk to anybody because we've all bought into these tribes instead of buying into the kingdom. And I want this year for myself and I want for all of you such a radical revelation or such a radical apocalypse of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven that it shapes everything else that we assume about how the world works and that he is all that we want. And when we allow ourselves to be immersed in that kingdom of heaven, it's going to transform us inside out and we're actually going to find our purpose. But our purpose isn't to prop up the false kingdoms of the world. Our purpose is to further the kingdom of heaven in all of the amazing gifts and stories and and positions that God has put you in in this life. Like he's going to use all of that to further the kingdom, but you need that revelation of him first. So we're going to practice uh, sitting at the feet of Jesus uh, for some time. I think it's a nice way of talking about meditation. Again, a a word that gets very confused in our society because um, there's meditation in all different religions and there's non-religious meditation. When Christians talk about meditation, what we're talking about is sitting with Jesus. That's what we're talking about. And so I'm going to pray and we're just going to sit quietly with Jesus. A couple practical things. Open up your body. Your, your heart and your mind will follow your body. And if you're all curled up on yourself, your mind is curled up and your heart is curled up. But if you're open posture in a place that you don't have to move and fidget a lot, you'll find it a lot easier. For some of you, uh, you might be very visual people and you're just going to ask the Lord to give you some vision, give you, give you a vision of Jesus. What does he look like? What does he sound like? How does he look at you? And to allow that to guide you. For some of you might ask the Lord, just give me a single word. Maybe today, all I need to sit with Jesus is just a single word. Or maybe it's a Bible verse. Or maybe it's a song. Whatever it is that's going to be between you and the Lord. And that's part of the process of intimacy. Is figuring out the specific language that you have with Jesus. Uh, but we're gonna, I'm going to pray. And let's, um, let's just, we'll just do completely silent, okay? Um, so you guys can, yeah, you're right. You want to chair? Okay, you can have this one. Um, Got to take care of our people. Uh, so I'm going to pray, and we're going to sit quietly with Jesus. And oh my gosh, I am five minutes under time. This is I'm using it right now for sitting with Jesus, though. Don't give, don't award that. Epic. <laughs> so we're going to do four minutes of just sitting with Jesus. Does that sound good? Everybody ready? I'm going to pray. Um. Jesus, hi. First of all, we're sorry for when we have confused productivity and faithfulness. When we thought our lives are about running around and doing lots of stuff and filling up our calendars and making sure that there's not a down moment in the day. Because when we've believed that, we're believing something about our value and our worth. And we're believing something about you and how you value us and how you Uh, see us as worthy. We are not tools in your hand to be used to do something. We are your children whom you delight in. So Lord, would you speak to each one of us now as we just sit quietly with you? Thank you, Lord.
when we listen to Jesus, he leads us places that we might not understand before we go there. But it's only in following him by faith and participation that we begin to just catch the slightest glimpse of what he's talking about. And this is a really beautiful way for us to understand the Lord's table, the Holy Eucharist, the communion. On the night he was handed over, our Lord Jesus Christ took this bread, this bread that was part of this Passover ceremony, and, and he took it and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The word remembrance meaning not just this thing that I did once upon a time, but making true what was then, making it true now. And then he took this cup that was part of the ceremony, this wine. He says, this is my blood which was shed for you. Wherever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And so as the people of God, as the church, whenever we gather together and come to the table, we are remembering who Jesus is what he has done and what he continues to do. And we're allowing him to speak over us anew the forgiveness of sins, the opportunity for new life, the recognition that we are citizens in the kingdom of heaven first. And so I'm gonna pray and as I invite you forward to the table, I want you to come with that open posture, that open heartedness to, to allow Jesus to speak to you as if you were at that table at that very first Eucharist almost 2,000 years ago and to look him in the face and to see how he's seeing you and what he might be saying to you and to believe that his words, his words alone are salvation. So Father, I thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you for people like Mary and Martha. We thank you for this, this woman who anointed Jesus in Bethany. We thank you for the disciples because they are us. But sometimes they do a good job of listening and sometimes they don't. But you're always welcoming them back. Just as you always welcome us to come home, to come back to you, to change the way we think, to change the way that we assume how the world works or who we're called to be or what we're called to do. Lord, I pray as we come to your table, as we receive the body and blood of Jesus, that it would be one more statement to us of where we really belong, of who we really belong to. That we might have the courage to be more confessional in recognizing in our lives when we are operating in kingdom ways and when we're not. But that we would be still more immersed in the reality of your kingdom. Bless us, Lord, as we bless you. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Come. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.